I mean, I want people to be able to either, you know, bookmark it, put it on your fridge, whatever, go with the highlighter, print it off, and just, yeah, just hopefully find some good movies. And the genre breakdown hopefully will help you, you know, steer it in a, in a direction of maybe your personal taste. Even an entertainment reporter can get worn out with the weekly grind of reviews and interviews. Sometimes you just need to mix things up to keep it interesting. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Joining me in the studio today is an old friend of ours, Jason Fraley, the entertainment reporter from WTOP Upstairs. Welcome back, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's always fun when we come on. We could yeah. talk hours. Yes, we could talk hours about Sometimes them. we do. Sometimes <laughs> we do. Yeah, you wouldn't believe how much we have to edit these things. Yeah. But uh, usually we talk to you in January, February, when we're talking the movie wrap-up, the, the movie awards season. But here we are in, in the middle of the dog days of August, and you have this big project that you... Uh, rolled out last week on August 1st. Can you sort of tell me about what that is? Yes. A massive project is an understatement. <laughs> it's my best movies in every genre. So, I mean, I've always been wanting to do a best list uh, because, just because it's a way to sort of give back in a way, not to sound too altruistic, but no, like uh, I've always been obsessed with rankings and also the way I fell for movies and started memorizing all the movie dates and all this, all the directors and all that stuff was by looking at other best lists. I was obsessed with the American Film Institute list when they put it out. So I printed that off and I printed what, Sight and Sound Magazine, you know, it was around the turn of, you know, I what, I graduated high school in 2003 and college in 2008. So yeah, it was right around that time where, yeah, it was right around that time where all the best lists were coming out because everyone looked back on the millennium and uh, see what the best ones of the 20th century were. So I was like, let's do our own list. Yeah, if we've learned nothing from being digital journalists is that people like lists, mm -hmm. uh, especially things that are fun. And movies are fun. Everybody loves movies. I'm sure there are people who don't love movies, but we're not, <laughs> this podcast is not for them. So, so yeah, 30 genres. 30 genres. <laughs> the top 25 in each of those genres. So we're, we're talking about 750 films. It's pretty crazy. And actually, believe it or not, we had when I initially pitched this to uh, our friend Julia Ziegler, who you know well from down here, he was at 64 subgenres. At that point, I had broken it down into, you know, like con and heist movies had their own one. Or instead of, um, we always joke that instead of just one fantasy genre, there was fantasy and then magical realism was its own one. Um, because, you know, I don't know. It's just, it seemed weird. I knew I was going to get emails and it just seemed weird to have, you know, I don't know, a, a field of dreams. It's a wonderful life kind of magical realist groundhog day. Those movies in the same genre as, you know, the other world fantasies like Lord of the Rings and stuff. It seemed a little odd, but ultimately we had to cut from 64 down to 30 genres. So I cut it in half, believe it or not. And then the way we kind of got around it was instead of doing top tens and everything, then we were like, all right, how about we do fewer genres, you know, like you might see on Netflix or at Blockbuster and, or IMDb. DB genres everyone knows, but fewer of them, and we just made it twenty five in each, which made me actually lose a couple good categories too, like superheroes. That yeah. could have been its own. That was its own thing when we had a top ten, but then when it got to twenty five, I don't know. I couldn't really justify it. It would have been listing every single Marvel movie, you know. So yeah. we wanted the cream of the crop. Yeah, and it's interesting because you you actually set some rules for yourself. It's not mm -hmm. just. You could really put it down to there are really only 200, 200 movies that you really love and right. that you could sort of spread out sure. and then would fill up these different categories. But each movie could only appear once. Right. So regardless of cross-genre appeal. So like The Matrix could easily have been in sci-fi, but I put it in action because I think of the bullet time, you know, slow motion, bending backwards and the wire foo. Or The Wizard of Oz could have easily topped my fantasy list, but I ended up going with musical. All these are just judgment calls, and in a way, it was it was just it was a fun rule to set in terms of 
you know, you needed some parameters for this giant puzzle you're putting together, you know, and if, it would have just been a lot of repeat entries, I think. It was good that we limited it, I thought. It's interesting. You have something like Star Wars. You know, I went through the science fiction list, and yeah. I was like, okay, well, well, number two is Star Wars. And I was like, oh, well, no, no, number one must be Star Wars. And actually, number one, do you remember? I put 2001 A Space Odyssey. 2001. Yeah. So then I was like, well, where the hell is Star Wars? And, <laughs> right. Well, you like, could put that in fantasy, too, so I don't know. And, and I think that's what you did. You either yeah. put it under adventure or fantasy. So No, it was, it was number two sci-fi. It was number two? Yep. Well, yep. I must have been looking at some other list, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. But it's also, you, you have some interesting, I mean, obviously you have things like horror and drama, but you also break it out into like gangster and film noir and, you know, mystery, but then you also have suspense, right? Mm, there's no, no that, that's, suspense I, kind of I have goes, not yeah. seen this list. No, yeah. there's mysteries as its own one, and then there's thriller as its that's own right. one, and then there's horror as its own one, too. Honestly, full disclosure, it was just an excuse to get more movies on here, man, you know? Yeah. But it was actually, it actually was a really fascinating genre exercise for for my own brain, like, where do I put this? But it made you really get to the core of what all this is, you know, if it's... If it's a thriller, you know, a lot of times it's, what is it? It's like the bomb on the bus. Like Hitchcock shows us what the, the characters don't see. Sure. But what I put in into a mystery is if it's actually something that we, the audience, are actively trying to solve, like Rear Window or even Vertigo. It's like we're going along on the mystery. So and it became a thing where not all mysteries are noirs, but a lot of the noirs have a mystery element. But, you know, so it, a lot of that had to do with the style and the, you know, the caroscura lighting and the half-lit faces and, and the femme fatales and all the archetypes you think of noir on. Um, including neo-noir. We put them in there together. But yeah, it was interesting to see how it all broke down. And there was honestly so many gangster movies when I sat down, I was like, well, I don't want to kick off Dog Day Afternoon from my crime list. Let's make it its own crime separate thing. And then the gangsters is, you know, the actual mobsters. Yeah, it's interesting knowing you and knowing that the types of movies you like, it's where they would go. Because I thought, well, you know, where would, you know, you're a fan of Hitchcock, where would Rear Window, or as you said, where would Vertigo go? And that, you know, isn't necessarily where... It isn't in thriller, but it is in in mystery because it's, it could easily be in thriller. It you could know, be, but. or it could be a drama. I mean, yeah. or it could be, you know, I guess. And Vertigo is a ghost story too. So I mean, yeah. So it could be horror. Yeah. So we could sit here and like go through all 750 movies. Sure. We're not going to do that <laughs> because that would be ridiculous. But what we are going to go through the, one of your categories is politics and media because I felt that was the most relatable to it's all journalism. But it's before, in the title, man. It's all journalism. It's, I know. Uh, but before we get to that, though, I, I did want to ask you, you didn't just put these lists up. You're actually, you know, let's talk about some of the stuff that's going up around it. You're, sure. you're doing videos for it every day you're, and other things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we did the big rollout on August 1st, like you said, dog day of dog day month of the <laughs> of the summer. But yeah, so the whole list was up just so, you know, just to your point that if you didn't see a movie you you love, then we wanted to, you to realize, okay, yeah, maybe it's not in this, but search the whole PDF all at once, see the ranking, all that. But in addition to that, we were rolling out every day a different teaser video where I get to, on social, where I get to just kind of give my explanations for why I did a certain things. And uh, yeah, so it's been a big project. We have on-air pieces every day or every once a week now, too, uh, still promoting it. And it's been a fun exercise from just from your really journalism perspective, too, on how to do a rollout. And we have a live blog where people have been commenting, not to mention social media. And yeah, it's... It's been pretty hefty. Yeah, the blog is really kind of interesting because it's almost like every day when you post a new list, like comedy, like everybody's like, well, why don't you have, um, um, oh, Jesus Christ, what was that movie? There's a comedy uh, no, you're some, trying to no, think of? 
with comedy, why, why don't you have some like it hot on there? Oh yeah, yeah. Where everybody else, which is, is one of the funniest movies ever. And then I was like, it's, I actually slid it over into romantic comedy because it has the romantic stuff with you know Marilyn Monroe, but also in a weird way, I kind of wanted it right next to Tootsie. It just felt more of a piece with that. But on, yeah, honestly, so many of these could just go in in other ones. So, so you're just arbitrarily breaking them up into lists, but they're a big pile because there's I, there's not a bad movie in in these. And, and sometimes when you look at the you know, the AFI list, for example, a lot of those stuff that's in there, you, you look at one movie and you're like, oh, this is great. Yeah, it should be in there. Then you look at another one and it's like, well, this isn't, I, I don't enjoy it much. I don't understand why it's in here, but it, it may be in there for technical reasons. Right. Or but, historical reasons. Exactly. And that's why we have, we really, I really, each one of these, I mean, they're ranked too. So it's not just the alphabetical 25. It's, they're each ranked. So it took a while. But that, one of the things I really wanted to kind of spark conversation was I wanted to, Occasionally rank a mainstream blockbuster over the art house flick or or maybe or maybe vice versa, just so that people can realize that, you know what, like I think I think films work on a spectrum. I mean, it's I really think there's an art extreme and an entertainment extreme. In my personal opinion, I like when it's a, a fun roller coaster on first watch. But then I really liked appreciating like with Get Out, for instance, so suspenseful the first time. But I don't think you've truly seen Get Out until you've seen it again. Same with Vertigo. Same with a lot of these great movies. You know, you can appreciate certain things the first time, but you got to go back multiple times to see the breadcrumbs there because only after you know the ending can you see all the double meanings and symbolism so I wanted to ba- I wanted to balance new old art house and indie and mainstream foreign flicks domestic Hollywood you know I, I wanted it to run the gamut and hopefully give some people ideas of what to watch now get out you t- you'd think that would be up towards the top of horror but again that's something that I think you put it under suspense I have it number five or on thriller? Thriller, thriller on thriller. thriller yeah I mean that was off there's comedy elements in there too it's that was some of these were really hard to, to categorize so you say you have a blog and people are responding what are the reactions uh, as this thing sort of rolls out over the the month a lot of them have been where's this movie and i was like it's in another genre just search the pdf <laughs> but it's okay you know it's a massive thing no mostly mostly it's been really positive a couple people threw out some ones where that was like oh man i i wrestled with them and, and you almost knew the ones that they were going to say too because let's face it i had a lot of on the bubble movies like raising arizona i got down to it and i only had room for one coen brothers comedy in the 25 or, or you know coming to america I, you know, I went with um, Beverly Hills Cop because that was like a four film franchise. But honestly, you could do you know, what was another one? old school. I only had room for what one uh, Vince Vaughn, Will Ferrell movie and the Wilson brothers. So I went with Wedding Crashers. So, yeah, it's you really start to had to kill some babies and, and puppies here. It's like, all right, well, you got to have a Laurel and Hardy movie on. But just because that, then you're not going to have Tommy Boy. And, you know, it's, it's really tricky. But well, let's let's dive in here into the politics and media. Sure. 25 is the American president, Rob yep. Reiner, Phil from 1995. Then the candidate, wow, which should have been, I think, probably up higher oh, by, by Michael Ritchie. I love how Redford goes, what do I do now at the end? <laughs> That's a great movie. I just saw it recently. The Parallax View is number 23 by Alan uh, Pakula. That's a great movie. The China Syndrome with uh, by James Bridges. That's an interesting choice. With Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda. Three Days of the Condor. Sidney Pollack, that could almost be a, a thriller. Totally. Good Night and Good Luck, George Clooney. That's a great, great journalism movie there. Love it. All the King's Men, a, a really great a political movie. I'm surprised that's not in the top 10. When we get to top 10, they must be really great. <laughs> we're going to have to find out. The Great Dictator with Charlie Chaplin uh, is uh, number 18. Number 17 is Nightcrawler. Dan Gilroy film. That's an edgy uh, pick. <laughs> that's an edgy pick. That's a really that's a that's a fun movie. It, I it, thought Gyllenhaal was great, and the whole "It bleeds, it leads" idea of yeah. TV and how you can manipulate the news. No, uh, yeah, it's almost like a modern day network. Right. Uh, yeah. Exactly. But you forget that that's a media film. Mm-hmm. Then broadcast news with James L. Brooks. 
at 16. You think that was going to be higher? No, that's that's about where it is. It's a middle of a pack type of movie. I, it, was, it was one of those that I thought was going to be a top 10 when I watched it again. I was like, nah, I think it can slide down a little Pe- bit. Certain <laughs> parts don't hold up. Yeah, people love that movie. You know, I would even almost slide that into romantic comedy. But, totally, but totally. it's certainly a, a media flick. The Post by Steven Spielberg's that's 15. A little surprised that it's... Meaning it's not higher or you didn't higher. think it was that good? Well, well, there's a lot of people that hate it, so well, I loved it. You know, I even think we even said this back in January. It's a little manipulative, yeah. but it's, I mean, it's it's Spielberg. I wanted it idea. in there halfway. I think it's, I mean, it's kind of a little tidy, I guess, compared to like uh, All the President's Men or something, but it's in there. Now, now here's a movie, and, and you know, I, I watch this every couple of years. The Seven Days in May, John Frankenheimer, the 1964 paranoia film uh, <laughs> that could easily be a, all these could be top 10 yeah no and this could be a th- one could so be a th- good th- it could be a thriller as well well yeah 13 being there by hal ashby now that's a great film right and but you know it, it just shows you how rich some of these are that this is you know it made the top 20 it's it's but it's not in, in the top 10 and you forget he that's a movie i was like how do i it's almost like a magical realist forrest gump kind of a way but the more i thought about it Remember, he he only knows the outside world just from watching television, and then he gets becomes like a political insider in Washington. So I think it kind of fit in the media and the politics. Yeah, yeah. Goodbye Lennon by Wolfgang Becker. I'm not familiar with that movie. Oh, it's so good. I'm going to have to watch it. That's young my... Daniel Bruhl. It's breakout role. His mom is, um, it's East Berlin and West Berlin before the wall goes down. She she goes into a, a coma and while the wall comes down, and when she comes out of the coma, Daniel Bruhl has to... Explain. Pretend no, like uh, shoot fake news. No, literally, he he stages this entire thing while she's laying in her in her hospital bed, so she thinks that the wall's still up. Oh wow, it's crazy. <laughs> to, uh, I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. Yeah, number eleven. This is one of my most favorite cynical it. movies. I love it. Ace in the Hole, Billy Wilder. It, I was for, thinking about with the mine, the trap miners. Yeah, because that's what it's about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There there are a few films as cynical as that movie. Literally but ends actually, on it. There's a there's one higher up that I think probably pushes it aside. Uh, now we're <laughs> at the top t- ten. Everyone go see Ace in the Hole if you haven't seen it. If, yeah, it, literally the lengths that a newspaper man will go to keep the story alive, and I mean it's pretty tragic. It's yeah. dark. It's cynical. You're right. Yeah, no, it's 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 a great flick. So now we're into the top ten, and we can talk a little bit more about these. No surprise that this is in here. I mean, this could have been a comedy. It could have been a comedy. It could could have been one of the top five comedies mm-hmm. easily. Doctor Strange Love by uh, Stanley yeah. Kubrick. It's so good. It Peter is. Sellers playing three roles. I mean, a lot of time you think of the, you think of Eddie Murphy doing all the roles at the, you know, the farting scene in Nutty <laughs> Professor or Mike Myers doing all the roles in Awesome Powers, but Sellers was really the first to do that and play, especially his, the title character, the, when he, he's sitting in the wheelchair and he can't control his, his heil and it, it's just hysterical. Not to mention, all, you know, gentlemen, you can't fight in here, it's a war room. It's so, it's almost, it's one of those I think that you appreciate the more, the older you get and the more politically uh, minded you get. You know, if you, if you pop that in in high school, you're probably not going to appreciate how funny it is. No, I saw it in college in a double bill with uh, Young Frankenstein, which was a, a, a very odd mix. But the per- other performances in that, uh, George C. Scott's great. So good. Um, and Sterling Slim- Hayden. Yeah. Sterling Hayden, Slim Pickens, top oh, he, to bottom. He's the riding the nuclear bomb down, and Sterling Hayden's talking about his precious bodily fluids. <laughs> yeah. and Oh, it's just so good. Okay, so number nine is Z by Costa Gavras. Yes. Um, Greece. Greece. That's a, a wonderful political thriller. It was, it was another one where, like, that's in my mind, that's a top tenor. And then you go back and watch it again. And I I love how it rolls out when you, you know, you read the premise that it's going to be, a, you know, a political assassination. And you, you think, all right, maybe that's going to happen in the opening scene. And then we're off to the races trying to solve it. But no, I mean, it actually kind of 
there's a lot of attempts on this guy's life before he's ultimately club. We don't want to give it all away, but I also love that. I know, I know it's inspired by true events, and I love in the beginning. You know, you see all, you you see a lot of movies that say you know this what any any coincidence to a real life person is unintentional, but this one actually it says this is this is intentional. Like it's really ballsy right from the start. Yeah, it's sort of like the way that. Battle of Algiers is yeah. sort of this almost documentarian, you know, the, the same thing with, with uh, Z. It's, I mean, it's not really constructed like a, a Hollywood movie. No, and the camera's like, even in the opening, like the camera's like right up in your faces and cutting around with these jarring, like almost jump cuts. It's it's pretty powerful filmmaking. And there's a reason I have it back to back with The Conformist, yeah, which, which is, is the next one. Next one. Another movie because that the I- same actor. Bernardo Bertolucci film from 1970. Another one I haven't seen that's on my list. Oh, it's so good. It's the yeah. same actor as the, um, I'm going to butcher it, Jean, Jean-Pierre Trignot, I think. The guy that was in Amour. Remember Amour? Yeah. About the, yeah. It was him in both of those, and I wanted to put him back to back for that reason, just to have fun with it. But it's, I'm telling you, it's probably one of the... It might be my favorite cinematography of any movie. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I've seen clips of it, and it is pretty impressive. So, yes, that's definitely – that's a great thing about your list. <laughs> now I've got this list of all these great films. Now, here's the one that, that kind of pushes Ace in the Hole back is the, the probably one of the most cynical uh, movies ever made, <laughs> A Face in the Crowd with Aaliyah Kazan's. I started watching this like on a Friday night, and my wife was in the room, and she's like, "Is this Annie Griffith? What is this movie?" Yeah. And she got so engrossed in it, and it, it's such a great commentary, very prescient. We're going to talk about network in a little bit, but it's very prescient in that way of of how media shapes public opinion and how this really despicable human being gains all this political power. Yeah, what's his name? Lonesome Rose. Lonesome he's Rose. sort of a real, he's like a loud mouth, but charismatic and through the television set wins over masses of audiences and to the point where he's actually eyed for a political run. So yeah. I think it's very, I mean, anyone that comes from TV to the presidency, you know, whether it's Reagan or Trump or who, even, I mean, I guess Kennedy was kind of that way too. It's kind of, yeah, I think, I think this movie really foreshadowed yeah, a lot. Uh, the power of TV, because it's 1957 and people, I don't think people fully grasp, I mean, we're watching I Love Lucy and stuff. I don't think people fully grasp the network social commentary idea. Yeah, yeah. And the I think, power. Yeah, it, that was, I think, one of the early ones to, to really kind of put that out there is, hey, this 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 television thing is a really dangerous mm-hmm. weapon, or could be. Our next one, this is, this, I think, uh, of all the pictures in this one, I think this is probably your most paranoid, which is The Manchurian Candidate by John <laughs> Frankenheimer. Manchurian Candidate is so badass. I mean, it is that opening scene where the camera circles around and it, it's the brainwashing scene. Yeah. When um, they have, um, it's like a it, it starts in a club. garden, like yeah, a garden, garden club, a garden club. But as it rotates around in like that 360 spin, it becomes the, the you know, the people getting brainwashed in Korea. And then it circles back and it's back in the garden and it cuts back between the two. It's so good. And Angela Lansbury with the solitary game. Yeah, she's great Thank in you. it. She's great in it. Sinatra's pretty good in it too. You know, he's he's always hit or, hit or miss with what, whatever particular role. But this is kind of an interesting role for him because, on the one hand, he's heroic, but he's also kind of a victim. So it's kind of a neat a neat movie. Spotlight is number five. Uh, the nineteen uh, or pardon me, the two thousand fifteen Tom McCarthy film. Do you think I have that too high? I loved it. No, I think that's it's. Pro- I would probably even put it maybe a little bit higher, but yeah. a little not that there's much room at this point. But yeah, <laughs> no, I mean it's one of the. You know, as far as journalism films go, I think it's probably the best spot on about how people write news and how how people report news. I think, you know, when I when that came out, I was really excited about it because it was this is how, you know, I've known people like this. I've I've been in newsrooms where, you know, there are people who talk like this. This is the way they do stories. This is the way they interview people and they follow up sources Mm -hmm. more so than the post 
which kind of Hollywoodizes it this really much, you know, so much what it's like to go out and talk to people who don't want to talk to you. Yeah, I remember we were, um, it was the first year we went and covered the Oscars, and everyone was talking about that. Everyone in that back room was like, the Revenant is going to win here. You know, it was Leo's turn, and, and, and then Inuritu won director and all that. And I was like, I think Spotlight has it because I don't think, I don't think the Revenant had a script nomination is what it was. And I think only two yeah. movies have ever done it without it. And I was like, I think Spotlight. And Spotlight did. It, and I think it is the strength of the script. It's, it is about gumshoe journalism and the, the work that those people put in, pounding the pavement in a lost time, too. I mean, they're flipping through, you know, books and, you know, old paper. I mean, I, I really I thought it was great. And I thought the whole cast, top to bottom, like was was unbelievable. Mark Ruffalo and Rachel yeah. Adams and who is it? Liev, Liev Schreiber and yeah. Michael Keaton. God, it's look at that cast. Yeah, it's a great cast. It's a great, great movie. Speaking of great movies, number four, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Frank Capra. How many Capra films do you have on this list? I have that. Uh, what's funny is I actually had Meet John Doe in this, and then I ultimately had to bump it for, I don't know, Parallax View or something. But um, but let's see. Yeah, Capra's in this. I think It Happened One Night is in my top three romantic comedies, I think, as it should be, because it started the whole genre. I have It's a Wonderful Life is my top fantasy. Yeah. There might be one more other one somewhere yeah. in there. But yeah. What is it you like about Mr. Smith? Oh, I mean, at this point in the list, we could all these are almost interchangeable. They could be number ones. I just love that. To me, it's the antidote to the the cynicism we were talking about in the yeah. other ones. This is the one, but yet it also doesn't shy away from the cynicism. I mean, it yeah. was very, you know, it, it didn't pull punches, too, in, in depicting a, a corrupt, like the graft and the greed of uh, Washington, D.C. But I just love that what shines through all of it for me is Jimmy Stewart's just idealism. He, you know, he's he wants to start a camp for boys. And, you know, um, <laughs> he comes and there's those great scenes when he first gets here and he... You know, he's like, that's what I want to be in this letter. And he points to the Capitol Dome and he's like, and I, you know, and my father always said, look at life like you're just come out of a tunnel or, you know, there's, <laughs> there's so, and it drops you really low too. I mean, Claude Rains, he get, you know, his, his political idol, uh, Jimmy Stewart's idol, Claude Rains winds up being corrupt and it crushes him and he's sitting on the steps of the, um, the Lincoln Memorial, right? Of course. And she has to come <laughs> talk him out of it. But we've all walked by the Lincoln Memorial on the scene, seeing yeah, uh, members but, of Congress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they've all been there. They actually, I think they were, I think Wedding Crashers stole that from that. But, um, they, I'm trying to think, I think, oh, I think it is the one that kind of started the idea of the filibuster. I mean, the, at least mainstream that whole concept of yeah. a filibuster. Yeah, I just think it's great. I think Jimmy Stewart should have won for that. He lost to um, Robert Donnett for Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, as we know how Oscar history, the domino effect began. And then Jimmy Stewart got, the, got it the next year for the Philadelphia story, which made it so that other people couldn't win. You know, yeah. it, 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 the domino is on. Yeah, well, that's the Oscars. Who cares about the Oscars? <laughs> but it's a great movie. I mean, it's. I think it's his other, I mean, other than George Bailey, I think it's his most iconic role. So number three, Sidney Lumet's network from 1976, Prescient, it still resonates. It's a wonderful cast. Patty Kaczewski's incredible script. You can't help get caught up in it. It's such a wonderful film and very powerful. It is. I mean, now we're yeah. Now we're back to the cynical side. But man, this thing was ahead of its time. Yeah. Just it really predicted the rise of cable news and the dangers of cable news. I don't care if you're a you know an MSNBC or Fox listener or whatever. But it really. I mean, this movie showed what was coming with that. Yeah. You, just, you know, we, we just talked about a face in the crowd, but you yeah. know, that sort of links to that it, is looking ahead into what you know the 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 negative power of. Of yeah. the 24-hour news cycle. By Howard Beale going on and saying, I'm in mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And then literally they, you know, they open, they open the windows and everyone's shouting it. That just shows the power of it. And I actually, I'm 
call me crazy, but you know how you know how um, Peter Finch he actually died before the movie came out. So this was a posh. I think he posthumously won the Oscar. Actually, yeah, he did. Just go with me here. In the movie, he remember he's like paid a visit. You think he has like a, some higher power talking to him in it, and then he dies. Like part of me is wondering if he actually that's oh. a, a real. Like I think some cosmic something cosmically tapped in and it's like you need to get this warning out here, and then and then he died. Every time I watch that scene and, and think of that he died, and then of course he dies at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert! But man, I yeah. And then and then of course Faye Dunaway is television incarnate. You know she's yeah, having yeah. sex with William Holden, and yeah. Um, and he has that great speech when you know he walks out on her. And man, it's just every top to bottom, it's just unbelievable. Now we go from that to which is like the quintessential uh, Washington slash media story. All the President's Men, uh, nineteen seventy six, Alan Pakula. Great film. I mean, these are all great films. But what is it you take away from that movie? Just like they say, there's no overnight success and there's no overnight breaking news. You know, there's yeah. no I mean, you see these guys working at it, working at it. And I the actually the thing that kind of made it feel like an ambiguous cliffhanger to me the first time I watched it. I actually almost love it even more how it just cuts. It does, does the little teletype at the yeah. end and it says Nixon's resigned. I dig that it leaves off there in a way. Like, it's, that's kind of a gutsy move that a lot of movies don't do. You know, speaking of The Post or, you know, Lincoln or whatever, they, they linger around a lot too much. And I think this, it, it just went into Woodward and Bernstein. And, of course, Dustin Hoffman and um, Robert Redford and of Jason Robert says, as um, Ben Bradley. And then, of course, um, Deep Throat and Follow the Money. Like, there's so much pop culture stuff from this, too. But I think, to answer your question, I think the more I watch it, the more it sticks with me as it's just this little slice of their reporting and not the aftermath that everyone already knew. It's the reporting. And I think it benefited from also from when it was made, both because it was so close to when Watergate happened, but also in the middle of, you know, the auteur 1970s mm. Hollywood films. It's not really, despite the fact it has two big stars right. in it, it's not a really Hollywoody movie in it. And the way it's structured isn't, I mean, you compare it to... Um, Compare it to The Post, which is a very Hollywood movie. Yeah. And you imagine, you know, Spielberg doing, you know, if he did his version of uh, All the President's yeah. Men now, what it would be. It wouldn't be the it same It was The things. Post. I mean, literally, remember, it ends with yeah. Pa- yeah. passing. It's like a prequel to All the President's yeah, Men. Yeah, That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's a wonderful film. I mean, it, as far as journalism goes, I think it had a lot. You know, I'm one of those people who saw this in those impressionable uh, years. And, and I, don't, I don't want to say that this is what made me want to become a journalist, but it certainly sort of influenced my outlook about what journalists could do. A lot of people credit that. I mean, you, you go to the most famous journalism or, or journalists on TV newspapers today, I mean, and ask them. A lot of them will credit the movie, which yeah. is a huge legacy. Yeah, even more so than the book, even actually more so than the actual, actual co- coverage. And we can, we can actually go into... Uh, some other time about maybe the the veracity of whether how much weight their actual coverage is to actually what historically happened. That's actually a good point. And another another, I guess, another point in the column of the film's legacy. Right. Like the movie. A lot of times the movie is what what's the line in um in the Manny Shot Liberty Valance, which is on my Western list. See it now on WT. No, um, the line in that is when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And in a way. I mean, yeah. to your point, I mean, all the president's men, yeah, Woodward and Bernstein were great, but you almost forget that all those other poor reporters were covering it because well, so of the movie. The reporters covering it and also what the FBI did and, and, and what, you know, how Congress was involved in the investigation. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more than just the Post covering it. 
to sort of change history. But I always think about that in Godfather 2 as well, like the hearings they have with Michael Corleone. It's, it's the fact that, because that, that came out in 74, and this is in All the Princess Men in 76, like the Watergate, you're right, is, was very top of mind. And so people, people consume those movies probably different than they do now. So we go to number one, and number one is the number one on a lot of lists <laughs> of movies. But the fact is, it, it's, it is a political movie. It is, a, at its heart, a, a journalism movie. Citizen Kane by Orson Welles, 1941. So you I, I went head over heart on this because my heart's all the president's men all the way. And I actually enjoy watching Network more and Mr. Smith more. But oh, yeah, I, I just I had to. This? Exactly. It, it was w- like, you know, I think I mean, it could have been in dramas. It could have been in a weird way. It's I mean, it's kind of a biopic, but, you know, not actually. But it was William Randolph Hearst is sort of the, who they're satirizing. But in the end, and uh, and on, honestly, man, when I a full disclosure, when I first saw this back in probably high school, I fell asleep, and I, I was like, I don't get it. I still show it to my students at AU, this summer class I teach, and there I'm watching them glaze over, and I'm like, man, I don't know if it holds up so well. I feel like I'm feeding them their vegetables, but I I love maybe I'll just show clips from from it next time on the first day. But I think it's. I think that it the reason that it's held up is yes, not only is it groundbreaking with the deep focus photography and I mean like yes, technically it's groundbreaking. Yes, it fractured the narrative in a way that you know pop fiction did years later. It doesn't really have a protagonist. We never see his face. Remember he's going around and what well, well Orson is a reporter. Orson Welles is the protagonist. But I mean in terms of the guy following it around, we don't even see his face. And it's told out of order. They tell the whole movie before it even starts with that newsreel, you know? News from the march. He's in there they have him spliced in there. With um, who Hitler and Teddy Roosevelt long before Gump did it. Like, there's all this, you know, historical groundbreaking. But I think to people focus on that too much. The point and the reason it gets so much love on the AFI and Marty Scorsese raves about it, just the reason is because of what he symbolically and artistically was able to achieve with the technology. So not only did you have deep focus allowing you to see foreground, middle ground, background at the same time, it's how it's symbolically used. So I'm trying to paint a picture since it's radio podcast land, but you have Orson Welles um, when he, he's they're reading a, some guy's reading a, a contract and it says you must relinquish all of your news, your power in your newspaper company. He physically walks back deep in the frame. Like imagine if you're looking at, you know, someone far down the street. They're really yeah, tiny. Dim- diminishing. He's getting diminished. And then literally. So and they even constructed the, the windows even bigger to make him even look really small in the background. But then right when the guy gets to a clause in the contract where he says, Actually, there's this amendment where you will maintain some semblance of power. I can't remember the exact line, but when he right when he says it, that's when he starts turning around and coming and getting bigger again. So I don't. I just want people to, if you watched it once and didn't get it, or you just watched it because you think you're it's your vegetables, go back and watch it and think. Literally, every shot has a symbolic idea behind it, like the size of him in that shot that I just described, and there's stuff through the whole movie. The camera is moving through physical objects it shouldn't, like a table and a, a gate, and flies over a. The roof of a building and descends down through a skylight. Yeah, or or even um or the famous thing like Rosebud, right? And there's that the snow globe where he drops, and there's that really cool shot that I think is just a cool shot. But imagine the whole screen is snow falling on a snow globe, or in you think you're in a snow globe, but it pulls back, and the snow is falling outside of the snow. It's all over the screen, like superimposed right. snow, and that's when you know we're in his mind. So I'm I'm just saying it's not just cool groundbreaking like artistically composed stuff. Mm-hmm. Each of those technical achievements and deep focus and all this stuff it has symbolic ideas, and that's why I think people keep holding it up because you notice more stuff the more you watch it. Yeah, to see 
you know, for me, you know, I, I like you sort of bowled over, but kind of the, the technical aspects, and it's easy to kind of get dazzled with it. But I think I remember hearing Martin Scorsese talking about the film. And the more I began to think about it, the thing that, that to me that sticks with me more than anything else is the character of Charles Foster Kane as he's portrayed, as he changes, as as he becomes powerful, as he, he, he his arrogance, through his arrogance, he loses everything. And, and that's why those those final scenes where he's with the snow globe and, you know, he's mm-hmm. he tears through his, his wife's bedroom yeah. And, yeah. and he's all alone in this giant giant mansion yeah. that's what that's why the impact yeah. is so big because you begin to understand who he is and so everything as you said is designed to make you understand who he is and so from a visual sort of narrative standpoint it, it you know it was doing things that nobody else had done at that time and so for me that's one of the reasons why it still stands out all these cyclone things are great but it, it all feeds the character who is this character and, and that's what the the cipher is at the very beginning and that's where the the reporter leaves it at the end what is what does it all mean you know they don't know what it means you know it's sad because everything that he held of value is is thrown into the fire he's compiled and amassed all of these physical possessions and really on his deathbed all he is thinking yeah. about is his boyhood sled which again i i like to almost it's almost a disservice to say oh the the twist in there it's not really it's not one of those where you're like oh my god the sixth sense like holy cow which is <laughs> really high on my thriller list it's more of a reveal that it's like that missing puzzle piece that they right. mentioned in his big estate that his wife Susan's putting together. But it's more of a, oh, let me ponder this a second. And why is he thinking about this sled on his, you know, it's almost, it's a thought provoker rather than a, a, a mind blower, I guess. It's yeah. not Tyler Durden. No, it's, oh my it's, God, Orson Welles is himself. There's two of them. No, it, it's a re- revelation as to who he is, who you, you know, that here's somebody who's, who's succeeded beyond anybody else's wildest mm-hmm. dream who had riches and, and fame and fortune and, and power. <laughs> he had all this this stuff, but at the very end he's he's just like everybody else. He dies alone. Yeah. Yeah. Well this podcast is gonna end in a very sad note. Oh uh, no, but, but it's, it's happy. It's, it's it's happy that at age twenty six this boy genius can put together this there we and go. and the magic of cinema. It's a happy it's a happy thing. <laughs> yeah. So what is it, you know, let's sort of wrap this up. What is it that you want people to get out of this this project? I hope it sparks someone like all those other best listed for me. Like I, for some reason, I've always loved rankings, and it's just it just helps contextualize things, right? And that's ultimately that's sort of that's some, that's my frustration in the day to day, you know, weekly movie reviews on Tupi. You know, it's like yes, it's fun, but to me, I know at the end of the year, there's only going to be like a handful, or maybe a dozen great movies that that we're going to remember. If that, like twenty years from now, are we going to talk about the? eighth greatest movie of the year. No, there's probably three masterpieces every year, maybe. I like the broad scope and where everything falls on the arc of history. That's why. So, like, I geek out around Oscar season because it's like, okay, where's La La Land and Moonlight going to go on the best list of all time rather than, like, oh, that was the... 50th grossing movie of the year. I don't I don't get off on that. But yeah, no, I mean, I want people to be able to either, you know, bookmark it, put it on your fridge, whatever, go with the highlighter, print it off, and just, yeah, just hopefully find some good movies. And the genre breakdown hopefully will help you, you know, steer it in a, in a direction of maybe your personal taste. Yeah, well, just going through these 25 here, I mean, we identified, uh, you know, I think maybe three movies that I, I'd heard of, but I haven't actually seen. So now I'm going to go through this. The other great thing about it is the fact that 750 great movies, I've, you know, I 
scanned all these lists. I did not see any movie where I go, nah, this shouldn't be on there. I mean, these are all great movies, of the, certainly of the ones I've seen. Yeah. They're great movies. They're, some are art, Oscar-winning masterpieces, and some are... Some are just fun oh, popcorn movies. <laughs> and But that's that's another thing I want to get off this. Not only suggestions for people to watch, but the idea that there's lots of different kinds of great movies. And we don't need to say that, you know, I don't, you know, The Avengers is any less worthy than um, Citizen Kane. You know what I mean? Like there's a spot for all kinds of great movies and there's different kinds of great movies. So by breaking things out into genres, you've shattered the boundaries that separate greatness. That's what I want to do. Yes, I want this to shatter the boundaries that separate greatness. And also, this used to be a mere historical exercise for movie buffs. Even when they did the AFI list, it was still, I mean, the internet was just coming around, you know? It was, I think, 97 was when they first did the first one. But now we live in an age of digital streaming where you can pull up any of these at any time. I mean, you can literally be looking at the, the T.O.P. PDF online and highlight the movie, paste it in your browser, and watch it on Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever. So I think it's a living, breathing document rather Rather than just a historical exercise, which was fun back in the day, but now it actually, you know, we can all we can all dive in here and pull up Bonnie and Clyde right after we watch Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? We, we can watch it all at any time. Yeah, when I was a kid, this again, this is how old I am. The only way you could sort of judge what were good movies if you picked up these books, these you know, like Leonard Maltin books, yeah. or or if David you Thompson. or if you look through the TV guide and see how many stars are next or something. So this is helps the discovery. So people can find this in WTOP.com. We're going to have a link for it with uh, on our website to check it out. If you love movies, if you're looking for a good movie to see on Netflix or where, wherever, check this out. Jason, thanks for coming in. Yeah, and ev- and everyone email us and comment and say what we got wrong. I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm sure I'm an idiot and totally spaced on some of these. So, but it's it's a guide. It's so subjective. So, write us in, write Michael, write it's all journalism and tell us what you think. Thanks. Take care. See you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. And it's usually at this point that I go through our credits and kind of wrap up things. But this week, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I want to focus on one thing in particular. But before I do that, allow me to read our credits. It's All Journalism is produced by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provides our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nick Hunter and Amelia Brust help out behind the scenes. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. But to get back to my original point, we have a weekly newsletter. If you're interested in finding out more about our podcast and, uh, you know, see what we've got going on for upcoming episodes, uh, possibly live events, other opportunities that we're going to be doing, things that we're going to be offering in the future, then please, please, please sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can go to our website, itsalljournalism.com. And you'll see a link at the top of the page to newsletter. Follow that and sign up. And we will send begin sending you our weekly announcements. So that's all I want to do this week. Once again, we are produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thank you for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. 
the Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.